Uniontown, a Uniontown, all down the line. This is a Uniontown, a Uniontown, all down the line. This is a Uniontown. This is President Ron Herrera inviting you to tune into Welcome to Uniontown, a new podcast that delves into the everyday issues and iconic leaders in the labor movement. We get to know the backstories of workers and the journey of leaders from their first job to their greatest victory. The show covers every aspect of the Los Angeles labor movement from the desert to the sea. On Labor Day, we interview Dolores Huerta, followed by an episode with key leaders of the Chicano Moratorium on the eve of its 50th anniversary. Welcome. I'm here with my co-host, Hugo Romero, with a new podcast that the Los Angeles Federation of Labor is has embarked on. And both Hugo and I have the distinct honor of interviewing Dolores Huerta, who is my personal heroine, without a doubt. So with our first per- podcast, we wanted to start off as big as we could and have someone of, of Dolores's stature. There's no other labor leader in the country who even equals to what her successes have been, not only just in labor, but for people in general. And Because so, I think Dolores is a civil rights leader. But anyway, welcome, Dolores. How are you feeling today? How's everything going? Well, as we know, everything is going pretty rough right now all over the country, especially here in California where we have all of these 700 fires that are going on, and of course the pandemic, and here in the Central Valley, so many of the farm workers have been affected by COVID, uh, so many have died, and, you know, we, and we, do, we haven't seen uh, the end of the, of the tunnel yet here in the Central Valley, so it's, it's been pretty rough, I think, for, uh, for uh, workers uh, overall everywhere. Yeah, gosh, the last time we saw each other, we were we had our Sunday best on. And we were at a dinner together. What I remember, mo- I was one of the featured speakers there that night. But interestingly enough, uh, I was given the task, and I don't know if you remember this. Uh, they said, hey, Dolores is here. And everybody got all excited. And then someone said, <laughs> Ron, go get her. So there goes Ron, right, to go get you. And you were in the back of the room, a large room, right? There's a thousand people there. And, you know, I just thought we were just going to go from that spot over to our table where we were sitting. And every five feet, right, we had to stop so that folks could take pictures of you. So at first, right, I was your escort. Then I became your media person. (laughs) And then I became your official photographer. And then I just became your bodyguard and said, okay, that's it. No more pictures, right? But... From that night, right, with Mr. Hoffa, obviously it was a Teamster event and, and a Teamster scholarship, or his dad's, his father's scholarship, uh, uh, till today, what what a turn of events from such a, a grand celebration to uh, don't forget to wear your mask, don't forget to wash your hands, whatever you do, don't touch your face. So, But, you know, here we are, and I'm so, so, Hugo and I are so glad you're with us. Well, that was a beautiful celebration, and uh, it was one of the last things I think I attended before we had the whole uh, sheltering in place uh, uh, that we are living right now. So, but it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful celebration, and uh, to see all of those labor folks up there all uh, suited up, you know, it, uh, 
it really, it really, it's really, really beautiful to see that. Dolores, I got to be honest. When Ron shared that story, I was cracking up. I mean, I because normally it's me being Ron's photographer anytime I go with them to events, you know, working with them. And so I just picturing Mighty Ron, you know, <laughs> Teamsters vice president, Fed president, you know, serving as your photographer. I was cracking up. And uh, one thing I wanted to share with you is, uh, a, and you probably may not remember this, I had a super embarrassing story involving you. We were both at a Northridge at their new performing arts center watching a play on immigration. It was a couple years ago. And yes, they, huh? <laughs> they announced Dolores Huerta is here. And so I had met you before and my wife had not met you. And I said, oh, wow, it'd be great to get a picture with me and Dolores. And, and my wife, that'd be amazing. And just to say hi. So we go down and of course, the without fail, there's that line Ron talks about to get a picture with you. But I think you had to go. But interestingly enough, security thought we were part of your family. And so they led you up through the, this back, you know, backside staircase. And it was just you. And they let us go through. And we thought it was just part of the program, like, to get, you know, a different space with you. <laughs> but you turned around and you looked at me and my wife like, who are these people? And we were alone <laughs> in this dark st <laughs> staircase. And security then comes rushing in uh, behind get me and my wife. What are you guys doing back here? You're not supposed to be back here. We're like, we don't know. They, they put us back here, and you know, we don't want to scare Dolores. They just wanted to say hi. They sent us back here. So ever since then, I said, you know what? We got to redeem this. I don't want her to remember us as that creepy couple that you know followed up the staircase. But thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And uh, as Rodman, it's just an absolute honor to to be able to talk with you and and just get your sense. One thing, you know, I just wanted to kick off right. Uh, you, we saw this uh, NBA uh, wildcat strike this week in defense of black lives, but a lot of folks were calling it a boycott. Now, I know you know a thing or two about a boycott uh, being the successful one. So for just for folks who have, you know, distinct, want a distinct definition of a boycott, how great would it be for Dolores Huerta to find a boycott for folks who may not know what it is and just what you made of the moment and, and what advice you would have for the NBA players to sustain their collective power uh, post-Wildcat strike. Yeah, I guess as you described it uh, better in labor terms as the Wildcat as the wildcat strike, I think if we wanted to make it a boycott, then we would ask people to boycott the NBA, and that's probably not going to happen. But I'm, I was really, really thrilled to see all of these uh, players uh, taking the positions that they did uh, because for a long time, you know, after uh, Kupernik took that knee and uh, he was never given back his uh, his job there with the, with the 49ers, he was never given back his position. And uh, although there was support, but so many of the owners uh, were so opposed and uh, were trying to castigate uh, players that, that supported the Black Lives Matter movement. And so to see this solidarity, oh, my God, I think it is so overwhelming. And we know that there are a lot of people, you know, especially, uh, you know, all of the sports aficionados, uh, 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 if we'd like to say, the people that are into sports and many members of my family are like that, that this is really going to be a strong message that, you know, you really can't go on business as usual anymore. Uh, we're not going to have that because now we're in a whole 
new world right now when people are demanding racial justice and social justice and eventually economic justice, which is, of course, what the labor movement stands for. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned the sports and aficionados. I know you coined the term si se puede. And as, as a young immigrant, you know, growing up, you think the first time I heard si se puede was would have been some labor related. But actually, it was through watching the ne Mexican national soccer team, level impact, watching them play, que si se puede ganar for the Mex U.S. Mexican <laughs> soccer team. Of course, we have yet to poder <laughs> win a World Cup, but that was the first time I, I heard Si Se Puede, and you know, it's, it's been inspiring to, to see the, the multitude of ways in which Si Se Puede has been applied to in terms of empowering the different communities, uh, and you know, Barack Obama using it in, in his campaign. Can you talk about how that came about and, and how it picked up, really, and, and you, you became to to you, Cesar Puede. Well, it was rather interesting. You know, Cesar was doing a fast in Arizona, a water-only fast, and uh, he was kind of in the middle of his fast, and uh, us organizers were out there in the community uh, getting people to come and support the fast. What had happened in Arizona, they had passed a law, and the governor had signed it, that any farm worker who went on strike could go to prison, really, and any, anybody who said boycott anything could also go to prison. You know, talking about the, the, the uh, basketball players that went on strike, and, uh, you know, that, that would have applied to them, for instance, you know. But in this case, it was only aimed at farm workers. And so that's why she decided to, to do this fast. And so I was uh, organizing some of the uh, professional Latinos there. Some of them are attorneys, and, and uh, they have all these professional positions, and asking them to support us in that effort so that we're trying to overturn that law. And uh, they and they told me, no, Dolores, you know, over there in California, you can do all of that, but in Arizona, you, you can't do that in Arizona. And uh, my response to them was, Cisa puede in Arizona. When I went back to a rally that we held that night, because every night that we would have a mass and we had a rally, and I reported that to all of the folks that were there. And when I said, I told them, Cisa puede, Everybody jumped on their feet, and they started clapping. Si se puede, si se puede. And it was very spontaneous. And so I like to say that that really came from the universe. So it was just very timely. And one of the young men that was there who was now an attorney, uh, I saw him in Arizona recently, and he told me that uh, when that happened, that he actually was one of the people that was there, and he said the chills ran throughout his whole body uh, you know, everybody was chanting Yeah, how lucky am I, Dolores, to first know you, right? And just through a conversation, right, you get back at, at, at someone and it just uh, comes to your mind, right, to say, si se puede. For me, right, I met the sanitation worker who coined the phrase, I'm a man. And he was just a striker. Mm -hmm. He was just a striker, Baxter, Brother Baxter Leach. You know, uh, he's um, deceased now. But to to know as a as a laborer, just forget about the officials and my titles, right? But just as a, a believer of of unionism, um, to know the two people that coined phrases like "si se puede" and "I'm a man." I'm a pretty lucky 
Um, I'm a pretty lucky guy. That's uh, that's wow. uh, that's amazing. You know, and you know, Ron, that I was in that march uh, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I, w- I was there in that march uh, after uh, Doctor uh, Mar- 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 Reverend Martin Luther King was killed, and uh, I have recently seen some of the pictures that are finally uh, they're showing them. But when we were on that march, it was so quiet. I mean, nobody was speaking, and you could just hear the, the feet as they were, you know, hitting the pavement there. People were walking, and with you could have reached out from the march because and touched the bayonets because they had all of these National Guardsmen that had their bayonets, you know, and their rifles trained at the marchers. And, and like in every other block, they had a huge military tank with the canyon aimed at the marchers. It was unbelievable, but it was a very, very quiet march. I, I was actually in New York City then. Uh, I was in charge of the Great Boycott, and uh, the Seafarers Union, uh, they chartered a plane and they flew us uh, to uh, be able to come to Memphis to be able to be on that march. And so I had my, I am a man sign for many years, unfortunately, when I had to come back to California, suddenly uh, my, my sign, I, I am a man stayed in New York. But yeah, that is such a great, a great statement. And oh, I'm so happy to hear. And, and I know, Ron, that you and I were together there uh, at the Emma at the Pettis Bridge, you know, uh, but we were able to march actually with John Lewis uh, you know, when uh, they had that huge celebration. So uh, I guess we've been really fortunate. I think uh, being uh, active in the labor movement, we do have these wonderful, wonderful occasions for uh, these uh, historical happenings you know, that we are part of. It's really powerful, Dolores. One thing I was joking with, with Ron as, as we were discussing, we're interviewing Dolores. I told Ron, you know, you know, just reading about history, right? How, uh, how fortunate am I? that I get to interview a UFW member and a Teamster in the same room. That probably <laughs> would have not happened some time ago. Can you talk about that evolution of that relationship between the UFW and the Teamsters and, you know, the great work you all have done to, uh, now? Uh, well, it's kind of interesting. In fact, I'll tell you some history that people don't even know, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that uh, when, when, when we first started organizing, and I don't know how, you know, because we really didn't publicize it. We had both left the community service organization, and we were starting uh, the United Farm Workers. And, uh, and we were actually called to a meeting, and uh, one of the Teamster attorneys, and I'm trying to remember his name right now, uh, asked to have a meeting with Cesar and myself, and we met him in Fresno. And he said to us, I hear you're, you're starting a farm worker union. Uh, they have really, really good intelligence, okay? <laughs> and so, uh, and he said to us, uh, and uh, we want to be able to help you start the, the union. And uh, Caesar, being very, very smart, you know, he just said, okay, we'll get back to you. And, of course, we never did. Uh, because one of the things about Caesar really wanted uh, the union to be an, an independent union. He didn't want it to be a part of any other organization. In fact, at the Community Service Organization Convention, when Caesar resigned uh, from CSO, uh, he was met uh, right outside the door. Uh, Norman Smith, who had been was being funded by uh, the AFL uh, at that time, uh, and had uh, started the Agriculture Workers Organizing Committee, which I had been a part of, uh, you know, at the very beginning. But then I left because they were working with the labor contractors, so I I, I left the the AWOC. But Norman Smith uh, was there. 
they had uh, the guy from the packing house workers union. Uh, they were there, and they were all saying to Caesar they were offering him to be the director of uh, again of their particular unions. And Caesar said no, uh, because like I said, he wanted the farm workers union to be an independent union, and uh, so. It, that, that was our, and then, of course, when we first started uh, the March to Sacramento that we had in 1966, uh, you know, George Mock from the County Workers Union was there at our march. He was one of the speeches at the march. But it was really interesting because uh, this was uh, April the 10th, I guess, of 1966. And I remember the date because it was my birthday. And But then on our way back to Delano, then the Teamsters Union was already in there uh, trying to pick up cards. Uh, because uh, we were uh, going to have a representation uh, election at one of the big uh, with one of the big growers at the Georgia Corporation. So uh, then we had the we had the press governor uh, Pat Brown at that time uh, to uh, to try to get them to cancel the election. They had an election. Uh, we were not on the ballot. UFW was not on the ballot. So we were able to get Pat Brown. Uh, to bring in an arbitrator, and then we negotiated to have a new election between us and the Teamsters Union. But the fight, you know, went on for several years. Uh, so that was our first uh, encounter with the Teamsters Union. Then we had another encounter at another uh, wine company that we were organizing. Uh, Probably Manetti and Bill Grammy came in there up in the Teamsters. And so uh, we had a... And then uh, this is, you're going to love this story, okay? So... <laughs> You're gonna love this story because the Teamsters were uh, they were in uh, uh, they were in convention in Miami and I think I was in Texas or somewhere and uh, Caesar called me and he said I want you to go to Florida because the Teamsters are having a convention and I want you to talk to Jimmy Hoffa so, so innocent me you know I go to <laughs> to down there to West Palm Beach where they're having their convention at the big Teamster convention and I got a room at the YWCA where they only charge $11 a, a night for a room. And I didn't really have any money uh, because I had gone straight from Texas to, to Florida. And so every day I would take the bus uh, and go down to the Teamster Convention and go up to where Jimmy Hoffa's uh, suite was at. And, of course, he had people there in front of the suite, a couple of guys there uh, guarding uh, the room. And I would go up and say, I want to meet with Jimmy Hoffa. And, of course, they would say, you want to meet with who? I want to meet with Jimmy Hoffa. And I did that for, I guess, about three days in a row. And, of course, every time I was turned down uh, to that I wanted to meet with him. And one time, George Mock was there, and uh, he came out, and he recognized me. And I said, I want to meet with Jimmy Hoffa. And he said, you can't meet with Jimmy Hoffa. You know? But then I, I had a stroke of luck uh, because uh, the laborers' union, uh, there in Florida was going to be have a, a big dinner and Jimmy Hoffa was going to be there a guest. So uh, they invited me to go to the laborers' dinner. So Jimmy Hoffa was going around the room and was going from table to table, shaking hands with people. And when he came to my table, I said, I really need to talk to you. Uh, the teamsters are, uh, you know, we're organizing these wine companies and the teamsters are coming in there and are really trying to destroy our organizing. And he said, really? Oh, okay. He said, I'll take care of it. And he did. Wow. He actually did. Wow. And so when I, when I got back to Delano, then uh, 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 Bill Grammy and I sat down and we worked out a, a deal where they could get out of their, that particular organizing. But then, of course, you know, that's not the end of the story, uh, because after Frank Fitzsimmons uh, became the president of the Teamsters Union, 
then Frankfurt Simmons together with uh, President Richard Nixon and uh, Alan Grant from the Farm Bureau Federation, then they conspired to uh, to get us out of, of, of the agricultural fields. And, you know, this is after we had had our great boycott, and we had won all of our contracts, and, uh, and then they came in when our contracts expired uh, in 1973. And the way that we had uh, negotiated our contracts, we had them expire all on the same day, on July the 27th. Well, then the teachers came in, and then, of course, there was, a, as you all know, a very bloody battle. Uh, we had people that were killed, uh, many people that went to jail, people that were beaten. And there's a documentary on that called Fighting for Our Lives. But I'm happy to say that uh, those days are behind us and that we have enlightened leadership now at the head of the Teamsters Union, uh, like Ron, who's with us right now, and, of course, Jimmy Hoffa, Jimmy Hoffa Jr., and... Uh, uh, but the, the sad thing about all of that is before the Teamsters came in, uh, we had contracts. We had 100,000 people under contract for the United Farm Workers. Uh, we had contracts in the citrus, uh, of course, in the, in the vegetables, lettuce, et cetera, and all of the fruits, not only the grapes, but we had the, the plums and the peaches and all of the other fruit. And then we had contracts also in Arizona, uh, contracts in Texas. And uh, and we lost all of those contracts. What came out of that uh, big uh, fight that we had was, of course, the agricultural labor relations law. And then we had all of these elections, uh, and we won most of the elections. We won like 90% of the elections. But then uh, we had a Republican governor uh, come in, uh, Governor Duke Majin, and a lot of those elections that we won, uh, we were never able to get those uh uh, those certified, we never got the contracts back, and and United Farmers to this day never recovered. Oh, by the way, we also had uh, we had like ten clinics. Uh, we had clinics in Salinas and uh, the Central Valley of California. Uh, we had a really great clinic in Delano, uh, down in the Imperial Valley, and even five clinics at the Mexican border. And uh, through the health plan that we had negotiated with the growers, uh, the Farmers had these clinics where they could take it. A farmer woman could have a baby uh, actually like for $75. And then we felt really bad when we had to increase uh, it to $125. Uh, so, you know, we had all of these great doctors in our clinics. And then we had actually had, uh, we also had a preschool uh, for the, for the, here in Delano, we had a preschool, a kindergarten, and then we had a first grade. Well, we lost all of that, and we never got it back. And the United Farmers never got it back. So uh, there were a lot of uh, negative consequences that came out of that fight. Right. And so we want to give, uh, I think Ron wanted to make some comments, just uh, some reflection. No, but, that was, that was tough times, no doubt about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, being in Teamster, you know, national Teamster leadership, we can never make up for that. Never. We have a great relationship now. You know that. And um, we're part of a, a federation together, which we, we, you know, we have been for, you know, some time now. But you left out one key point that you got accused of. Remember, you told me that after the meeting with Mr. Hoffa, you came back home and they didn't say that you met with them. They said you danced with them. Yeah, yeah that was Caesar. Caesar liked to, <laughs> 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 he liked to end all his stories. <laughs> yeah, he told everybody, 
Uh, poor, poor Mr. Hoppe. I mean, I hope nobody ever told him that story. But uh, I seem to like to say that that I danced. But I didn't dance when I was just. But I was able to, you know, grab his hand and get him to sit down next to me so I could explain to him uh, what was going on. And of course, he got it in a in a very quick minute. But I do have to also honor one of the Teamsters Union uh, presidents uh, of his local local 630, Jerry Veracruz. Uh, and he was so helpful to do, you know, we were picketing down there at, at, at the produce market there in Los Angeles. We would go there every single morning and, and uh, or, or I guess at night, at what o'clock, two o'clock in the morning uh, to be down there picketing uh, to get uh, uh, to get the team there to, to support us on, 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 the, on the great boycott. And, and uh, Jerry Burke, who was just always very, very supportive, and he actually went uh, against some of the leaders. Uh, down there, uh, you know, because of what was happening to the farmers union, and in fact, the very first fundraiser that we had for the Dolores Foundation, and when we started our foundation, uh, we we honored uh, Jerry Veracruz in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, he passed away like just a couple of days before our event. Uh, but uh, I think it was his son that accepted. Uh, we called it the Corazon Award, the Heart Award. Uh, which we gave to Jerry Veracruz uh, for all of his support. And and he got, of course, a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism, because he supported uh, the United Farm Workers during that, that really tough time. I, I actually was fortunate enough to uh, be mentored. Uh, one, he was one of my mentors, actually. And you know that, J- that Jerry was always very, very dapper. And he uh, defied... Uh, Teamster leadership and was sympathetic and supportive of you then. I, I still remember that. I remember that I used to be in hearings with them, and he told me a lot of those stories when, you know, he defied leadership. If the message was, don't go along, right? If you do the right thing, if you, if you believe in something and you believe in people, then, you know, suffer the consequences of your beliefs, and that's a that's a great story by by you know that you just told because you know he didn't tell me exactly that but I knew what what he was referring to. Dolores, that was a great point you made about you know you know Ron brought in levity about Caesar and, and the meeting with Mr. Hoppe. Now I know Caesar, you mentioned Caesar liked to joke, but I assume in the heat of campaigns and even wrong. There's also potentially some disagreements between leadership, right, which happens in the nature of all organizing campaigns. Can you talk about, you know, how you and Caesar handled those disagreements, any specific events where you just, you know, maybe there was intense disagreement between the two of you, but you worked through it? Oh, yeah. We used to have some really, really <laughs> hard, hard arguments, you know. And, uh, you know, I, 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 the one I like to tell is uh, the one about uh, he wanted to boycott potatoes. Uh, because one of the big growers here, of course, is the Jamara Corporation, and they have grapes, and they have citrus, and they have potatoes. And we had this one contract with this other company, DiGiorgio. We had a grape contract with them, and since it felt that we couldn't, we said boycott grapes, we would be violating that contract. But we finally talked him into it and saying uh, we could put, uh, we could say we're boycotting all California grapes except DiGiorgio. And the Georgia Corporation could put uh, our, uh, our our black eagle uh, on their on their boxes, and that way people would know that they wouldn't be boycotted. So we we had this. We, I was already in New York City, starting to organize the Great Boycott, and Cesar was in California, and so we had this heated argument on the phone. 
And I kept saying, Caesar, when people think of potatoes, they don't think of California. They think of, of Idaho. They don't, they're not going to think of potatoes. And so uh, I said to Caesar, look, I said, uh, I think I better fly back to, to uh, Delano so that we can have this conversation in person. And But Caesar didn't want to spend the money on a plane ticket. <laughs> so, so so, so he gave in. He gave in and said, okay, we'll, we'll put that grapes. And, and, of course, that was the right decision. But we would have a big, big arguments. And, and uh, sometimes uh, people ask me if there's anything that I regret about working with Caesar. And, and the one thing I do say is that I regret that not sometimes giving up when I shouldn't have given up uh, because I felt that sometimes we made a wrong decision and I should have just fought harder for my position. So... Lourdes, one thing, you know, you've lived a fascinating life, uh, you know, of course, just from what we've heard you in the labor movement, you're always an organizing mode, talking about different things and, and your foundation, and you're just such a natural organizer. But you've also seen a lot of tragedy. I know one of the key things is you had just spoken at Bobby Kennedy's rally here in Los Angeles moments before he got shot. Can you talk to us specifically you know, how you dealt with that and just all the trauma that you've experienced, specifically as a new generation of activists have to endure new killings? We just saw this week, right? Activists in the streets mm -hmm. being run over, uh, vigilantes shooting, uh, protesters. And, and a trauma is repeating th that cycle, and certainly it wasn't new for you and the beating you experienced at the hands of police. Can you talk about overcoming that and, and moving forward and how you dealt with that? Well, I think, uh, you know, being part of the labor movement, you know that once you set out on a goal, that there's no turning back. And uh, uh, when something terrible happens, like the, the tragedy of Bobby Kennedy, or even with the Farmworker Movement, you know, we had uh, five martyrs in the Farmworker Movement, five people that were killed, just uh, trying to get the right to organize, trying to get toilets in the fields and uh, cold drinking water. Uh, so we have our, our martyrs. And I think the one thing that sticks out to me, and it was, by the way, I don't know if you've seen the, the documentary the, the Dolores that the Carlos Santana produced, but there's a great scene in the documentary when Bobby Kennedy, you know, when he wins the California primary and he's stepping down from the podium, he says, we have obligations and responsibilities to our fellow citizens. You know, and uh, those are kind of his last words before he was killed. And uh, I think that is so uh, telling, especially right now with what we're going through right now, uh, to that everybody really has to get involved. And I personally want to thank all of the protesters that have been out there marching, uh, because I think there is some, uh, they are having some effect on some of the things that are happening, like Confederate statues being, uh, being torn down, and, uh, and some of the Spanish conquistadores, uh, conquerors in New Mexico, their statues are coming down also. But ultimately, I think uh, we just have to say to all the young people out there that marching is important, as we all know. Uh, protesting is important, but you've got to uh, be able to vote. And with the changes that we want to, to see happen, they have to be instituted in law, in legislation, because otherwise it can't be implemented, uh, it can't be enforced, and there's no accountability. And uh, so, you know, I think, uh, and, and I, I'm, you know, when I talk, and I've been doing a lot of Zooms this week uh, because they're celebrating women's suffrage and you know, the 100 years that 
uh, that were celebrated and the, the decades that it took to be able to get women the right to vote. But one of the things that I have been including in, uh, in, in almost every Zoom uh, event that I've been on is I, I like to include about the labor movement. And I like to challenge people. And when we think of all of the martyrs of the labor movement, and uh, I ask people, how do, do people know how we got the eight-hour day? And, of course, most people don't know. Do we know the names of the labor leaders that got us the eight-hour day? Of course, they don't know. And what happened to those labor leaders? They were hung. They were executed so that we could have uh, an eight-hour day. And we think of the martyrs of the Farmaka movement, you know, that uh, they were killed, uh, our five martyrs, so we could just have the right to, to have a union. And I think these are things that people should know. And one of the things I would hope, and I think I'm going to ask Maria Elena Durazo to introduce some legislation that we have labor studies in our schools. Right now, we're just fighting for ethnic studies, which we hope will get passed out in the session of the legislature. But then I think we've got to go forward and we've got to say to people, we've also got to have labor studies because people don't know what the contributions of the labor movement have been. And I like to remind people, if we didn't have labor unions, we wouldn't have the eight-hour day. We wouldn't have Social Security, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, workers' compensation, safety standards, public education. And I think that's the message that we have to give to young people. I was speaking to a, a young a progressive millennial college graduate. Uh, he's very much into the environmental movement. And then he asked me, he said, I don't know that much about labor unions, but my father was a building contractor. And these labor people, people are always bothering my dad. And so I said to him, how many of the people that your father employed have a pension? How many of them have a medical plan? And, of course, he looked at me and I said, I said, well, that's what labor unions do. They protect workers. He had no clue about what a union is or what a union does. So, as I said, we've got to get labor studies into our school systems. Uh, hopefully we can start here in California and then take it throughout the country. I think I'm going to join you in that, that when you do that with the senator, I'll definitely back it up. It's interesting that you, you said that about a Zoom because we're taking advantage of that too because education around collective bargaining is big, right? And one of the things that I did uh, was I, I made this um, pictorial, and it's of Latino labor leaders. And that's my background on Zoom. And all I'm doing by that is, you know, kind of like poking a conversation. Because it's, it's really, it's actually, I had it professionally done, and it's very beautiful. And I am proud to say that you're the feature of it. The, it's oh wow! My my favorite favorite labor photo is that of you holding up the sign that says Huelga, right above mm -hmm. your head. That is my favorite picture of all time. But the reason that I I came up with this idea was education, and I knew that people would ask me. Well, you know, they first compliment it. They compliment me on on the pictures, right? But you know, I have Cesar in there. Uh, you know, I have Ruben Salazar on there. Obviously, I have Marielena on there. I have Artie on there. Um, I have, uh, you know, a Teamster rally on, on uh, TPS and immigration, which is unusual. Uh, I have uh, 
you know, a Latino teamster leader that's on there. Just Mike Garcia's on there. So it's just, I, I meant it just to, to spark conversation and educate. And uh, it's an organizing tool. And that's something that obviously I learned from you. And, and I'm very proud to talk about, uh, about yourself and Caesar and, and uh, United Farm Workers and, and what that meant. Because that, would, to me, was a social revolution. It just wasn't about collective bargaining. It was a, you know, a mobilization, a gathering of people, and, you know, you all created a movement that should actually, you know, be used today. One of the things that I'm doing with my young staff is telling them that we have to go, we have to be, our foundation has to be fundamental and basic, and then use, you know, um, innovation moving forward. But we have to have good foundation and you and Cesar and the folks that I just said are our foundation. One of the things that stuck out yeah. to me, Colores, that you mentioned was um, the, the the martyrs in the movement, right? And a new th- new term, newish term that's come up in in labor spaces over the last you know several years has been the topic of self care. How does Dolores Huerta self care? You know, would, if if she does, because I heard you only sleep. Five hours, and you have more energy than Ron and I combined. Uh, what does that look like, or do, you know, or do you, is your self care, you know, just organizing, organizing, organizing? Well, actually, I love like I'm sure like Ron and many people in labor movement, we just love to organize, and so yeah, you know, that is what we love to do. That's where our energy comes from, and, uh, and so self care kind of comes at the bottom of the list. Actually, since I've been sheltered at home. I've probably done more self-care than any other time, and I even sleep one hour more. I try to sleep seven hours a night instead of six hours a night. But I, I wanted to add a little bit to the conversation about the importance of people learning about the labor movement. You know, my father, uh, Juan Fernandez, my dad was a volunteer for the Mine Workers Union, and so he was just a union man. No matter where he went, he organized the union. He was part of a big farm worker strike here in California. He was in New Mexico. That's where I was born. But when, when he came to California, uh, he got a job as a farm worker. And the first thing he did, he organized a big old strike in the asparagus. And I and I know this because somebody else told me about it. One of our Filipino leaders, uh, when he found out my what my maiden name was, he said, I think I may have known somebody related to you, a guy named Juan Fernandez. I said, oh, that was my dad. Oh, my God. He said he was a great organizer. And so and when he got out of the service, uh, you know, he uh, went to work at, uh, at, at the uh, army base there in Stockton. And what did he do? The first thing he did is he organized the union. He brought in the American Federation of Government Workers. And so my dad, no matter where he went, and when we started the Farm Workers Union, he would send us a check every single month, you know, because he was so union through and through. And we really got to get, uh, you know, get to start the labor movement. I would like to have the George Meany Institute maybe in Washington kind of just do like a little maybe a 10-minute video and talk about the history of the labor movement. Uh, I know I had, I've seen some of those before at the AFL office in Washington, D.C., and I've gone there to say, and look, can we find some of those uh, great uh, documentaries that have been made? But we really, and you know, one of the things too, Ron, that, that I have been, uh, uh, and I, I, this is what I say in my lectures that I give all over the country, and now I'm doing them on Zoom, and I'm doing like maybe two or three a day, sometimes more. But I like to bring in the labor movement and remind people that, of course, labor movement, uh, the labor movement 
and, and, and labor unions create the middle class. And if we don't have a middle class, we don't have a democracy. And uh, that is one of the things that we see that is uh, slipping away from us. And then about the laws that they pass against labor. And one of the things I like to talk about is, uh, you know, uh, when we people want rep- labor representation, that we can have a card check, that if your signature is good enough uh, for you to get married and to buy a house and to buy a car and to buy insurance and to get a divorce, your signature ought to be good enough for you to choose your representation from labor, you know, as a labor union. And and I think maybe we should try to get that passed also here in California, and then maybe take take it to the rest of the country, because all of labor is always under attack uh, by the bosses and the people that don't uh, really want to see workers' organizations, which is what a labor union is, uh, have the power uh, that is, that they are entitled to. No, I agree. One of the props that we're looking at just for hope and opportunity is one that that, uh, I definitely was a recipient of, and that's affirmative action, Prop 16, and I know you're a big proponent of that. And, I mean, I'm here today speaking with you and and being here with with Ugo uh, as a result of me, you know, being able to to take advantage and work hard, obviously, right? But uh, Mm -hmm. law gave me the opportunity and I, I commend you for, you know, being that champion for Prop 16. Would you like to talk about that for us? Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, my family actually was also benefited from uh, when we had uh, uh, Prop 209. We had, I mean, before Prop 209, we had affirmative action. And two of my sons, my oldest son, Fidel, is a doctor. And my son, Emilio, is an attorney. And they both got into college uh, on the backs of affirmative action. And if we look around right now at the universities, UCLA, the number of African Americans at UCLA is abysmal. I think it's only like three or four percent. Uh, the number of Latinos, I think, is only like six percent. And this is true of the public universities. If you go to uh, uh, the, uh, the the uh, the the, uh, the state college there in San Luis Obispo. I think the African-Americans are like, again, 3%, and Latinos, again, about 5%. So we haven't caught up. And, and not only that, but the government contracts that the state gives out. And when we had a permit action before, they only had to give out like 14% of the contracts uh, to people of color and women. But, you know, they were so greedy that they wanted to take that away. So uh, we have a good opportunity now uh, to, uh, to pass and uh, Prop 16 and bring back affirmative action. And also, by the way, we're supporting Proposition 15. This is one that we have been working very hard on. Uh, we helped gather the signatures, uh, over 1.7 million signatures to, to put that on the ballot. And this one, and uh, we would love to have support from the teamsters on this one. And this is to really uh, have the big industrial commercial properties that have not been paying their fair share of taxes to pay their fair share of property taxes. Uh, you know, not talking about corporations like Disney, uh, corporations like Amazon, uh, Chevron, all of these big giant corporations that are not paying their fair share of taxes. And that's what Proposition 15 is about, and that will bring in uh, $12 billion into our schools. And, you know, talking about education, uh, before Proposition 13 passed in California, we were like number one or two in terms of the amount of money that we give to our students. After Prop 13 passed, 
we went down to number 49. Luckily, we were able to pass Proposition 30 or 55 to bring in more money into our schools. But here in California, you know, we are the fifth largest economy in the world, and we are number 36 in, in terms of the money that is given uh, for each student into our school system. And that is disgraceful. So, you know, we've got to say to all those people that aren't paying up for share of property tax at this time that you do it now. And so it only affects the big guys. It does, uh, you know, small businesses are exempt. Anybody who has a small business uh, that's under $3 million is, is not affected by Proposition 15. Uh, homeowners are not affected by Proposition 15. And so we're hoping that people will vote for that because our schools are decimated. And, you know, actually, when we think of the schools in Los Angeles, schools in the Central Valley, the majority of the students in those schools are Latino children, and they are not getting uh, the equitable education that they deserve. And so we've got to bring more money into our school systems. And by the way, part of the money, 40% of the money from Prop 15 will actually uh, go to local, uh, local communities. And we know that our local communities have also been decimated now, especially with the pandemic. Dolores, you're awesome. We, we're running out of time here, but I just want to thank you so much for who you are, you know, how you've inspired me personally and many others, you know, in the movement. But I want to leave you with something, you know, for, for, for you. When I was on the Pettus Bridge with you, uh, we met on the, the, you know, when, when the march was over. Uh, your foundation was selling T-shirts, and I bought a couple of them. Uh, and it has passed from sister to sister, and my youngest granddaughter, when she feels rebellious, she's 10 years old, and I've taken her to uh, marches, and if there's something going on, in, you know, in, in, in this case, it, it's been the, the, you know, the, the protest, she wears that T-shirt with the brown and black coalition. I just want you to know that, you know, it's, this is what you've taught is generational and that you've uh, definitely touched a little 10-year-old Latina girl here in Los Angeles, and I wanted to thank you for that personally. Hugo? Thank you, Dolores, for joining us today. It's been an honor speaking to you, and, and I know for a fact that we'll continue seeing you on all the multiple Zooms and virtual events you're part of. And being in the labor movement, I, I know there's a lot of people that unplug, and you, despite your your na national, international profile, you're one of the most accessible, inspiring individuals, and, and we're very fortunate to have interviewed today and, and to have you with us in the, in the labor movement and beyond as, as a role model in, in Shiro. Oh, well, thank you very much. I feel very honored to be invited to be part of your of your podcast series, and uh, we'll just keep working hard and keep organizing and go union. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lars. You're, you're welcome. Thank you. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This Hey, this is President Ron Herrera, thanking you and my co-host, 
brother Hugo Romero for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Uniontown. A heartfelt thank you to Dolores Huerta. A big takeaway from today's episode is civic engagement, not only voting, but mobilizing our communities to vote as well. This election will carry an enormous impact on current and future generations. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share with friends, family, and of course, other union members. That's our show for today. Tune in next time. And always remember, Los Angeles is a union town. One, two, three, four, let's go. This is a union town, a union town. All down the line, this is a union town, a union town. All down the line. And if they come to strip our rights away, we'll give them hell every time. This is a union town, a union town. All down the line.